Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. If you've seen the 2005 documentary Overcoming, which is about the CSC team, you may remember a scene with Carlos Sastre doing lactate tests up a mountain pass. At one point he sighs and admits, I think my computer is cleverer than me. Well, 15 years on, it's not just our computers that are cleverer than us, it's most of the rest of our kit as well, including turbo trainers and now even helmets. On this edition, we hear from the people behind two of the most innovative brands, Sufferfest and POC Helmets. This is the Ruler Podcast, supported by Lacquer, bicycle insurance powered by the community. Well, the weather in the UK recently has kept plenty of us inside on our turbos and our rollers, and I'm sure many of you will have been cursing some of the programmes designed by our next guests. All the way from Sufferlandria, it's Neil Henderson and Matt Cassin. Now, Neil, you, first of all, you're a former pro triathlete, uh, coach to a lot of um, very well-known riders and athletes, and uh, your, your title is Chief of Science at Sufferfest. What does the chief of science do? Yeah, uh, really I've been charged with uh, bringing kind of a scientific perspective to how we train. Uh, we all know in cycling there in racing is an element of suffering. And, and even when we go out and ride on our own on a weekend, not in a racing situation, sometimes the weather creates it, sometimes a mountain creates it, sometimes other riders that we're with create that suffering. Uh, there's a bit of tongue-in-cheek within the, the Sufferfest as it is. Uh, but with what we do in our training, we're really trying to make what you're able to do there on the bike more effective and, and enjoy that. And, and Mac, you are chief cycling physiologist and you're also an elite track rider and uh, still a road rider, I think. What, what, what's a, a chief cycling physiologist? Yeah, so my role is really about looking into, you know, kind of aggregate data from, you know, all the users we've had and then taking taking people into our lab that we have set up in Boulder, testing them, looking at different you know, if what we're seeing in larger data sets is replicable and in the lab and then producing new new things from, from that. So one of the main ones that we've worked on is a, is a new ramp fitness test. So that's going to be probably the first proper project to come out of the SUF, SUF science division. And how does that differ from kind of existing tests? Uh, that one's unique because... Um, the, the ramp stages, so it's a ramp to failure, which is pretty standard. Um, those stages will be based off of your um, maximal aerobic power, not off, off of FTP. Um, so that eliminates some of the variation in terms of how far you can get in a ramp if you have a low FTP compared to high you know, one-minute power. Um, and then there's also a heart rate-constrained component afterwards. And so what we do there is we're able to essentially plot um, a low power, low heart rate interval before the constrained take the heart rate and power from the constrained interval and then take 
a portion of the ramp and the peak heart rate of the ramp, and you can basically make a linear regression, a nice straight line between those three points, and then get a really accurate estimation of FTP based off of where their threshold heart rate would fall on that line. I'm just about following you, but that is, <laughs> that is very, very complicated, isn't it? Or at least, you know, is, is, it, is it simpler when you're actually sitting on the bike? When you're sitting on the bike, it's very simple. It's, it's, you just, it's a standard, especially if you're on a, a smart trainer that has ERG control, it'll just take you the ramps until you can't go anymore. Um, and then for the heart rate constraint, some people might find that difficult because very few people these days ride explicitly to heart rate. And so we just ask you to change your effort so your heart rate stays stable, which can be challenging. But even if you don't nail all those parts correctly, like the ramp portion will still give, still give you an FTP and MAP. And specifically, because we have so much aggregate data looking at different age, gender, um, weight, that we can take the ramp values and add in factors, variables around your age, weight, gender, to give a more accurate FTP. So instead of taking 75% of a peak one minute for everyone, we you know, make the appropriate modifications. Okay, is this part of four-dimension power, or is it... Yes, this is aligned with it. It is uh, one where we're going to only be uh, really calculating two of the values, so the uh, max aerobic power value from the ramp and then the FTP calculated from the constrained portion. But from that data, then, we're going to be able to target for somebody a little bit better uh, estimate for their anaerobic capacity and neuromuscular power based on those factors, age, gender, weight, from that large data set that we have with all of our full frontal data for somebody to be able to train using 40p without having done that maximal 40p uh, test effort. Okay, explain four-dimension power for those of us who still think that heart rate monitors are advanced. Yes, yes. So... uh, 40p power is really something that we use to target training across a bigger range of intensities rather than just threshold. So threshold is an important value, and there's different names for that. And if you look in literature and things like that in the past, you might see something like lactate threshold or lactate threshold power, anaerobic threshold, uh, or functional threshold power is kind of the, the, I'd say, the term du jour now uh, of this sustainable power. But that's just one element. When we actually uh, look at cycling, different types of events can be heavily reliant on on different factors. So in track cycling, we have something like an individual pursuit that's going to be very well uh, dictated by the, the power at VO2 max or max aerobic power. But there's still other components that we look at in cycling. The anaerobic capacity, the ability to go on and off way over threshold is very important as well as like a true sprint or pure sprint and neuromuscular power. So that 40p is addressing all four of those values with FTP being the lowest of those higher intensity domains. So you're saying that two individuals with effectively the same maximum power output can be very different at over different events, so sprinters or climbers, or, and, and therefore the training shouldn't be the same. Correct. That's really our, our, the biggest thing. So we could have, you know, we could have 10 different people with the same FTP, you know, 300 watts. And let's just say they're all, you know, 80 kilos. So they have a certain power to weight ratio at that threshold. But you might have one of those individuals who can have a peak uh, neuromuscular sprint power of over 2000 watts and another person who can't crack 800 watts on a sprint. And then all values kind of in between that same when we get into the anaerobic capacity, if we look at what they could do for maybe a minute type of effort, one of those individuals, again, could be upwards of 700, 800 watts for a minute. 
even with a 300 watt FTP and somebody else who might just be able to eke out 450 watts for a minute. And so when we look at then the sum of all four of those and the variations, there is a really big variability across people, even if you had the same FTP. And as we do know, not everyone has the same FTP. So it's just like this massive uh, range and being able to target the training relative to your capacity in those different values helps us be more effective. And you've been using um, this principle, presumably with the pro athletes you, you, yeah. you work with. I mean, people like Rowan Dennis, Kashe Noadonna. Um, what difference have you seen it making yeah, with them? It's a, a tool, really, I kind of came to developing it back in around 2007 and 2008, working with Taylor Finney and getting him ready for the Beijing Olympics in the individual pursuit. I looked at you know some of the, the different models and tools that were out there and everything was based on a threshold, which Taylor had a very uh, you know minimal cycling background, literally a couple years in the sport, even though he was you know competing at a very high level, he didn't have a massive background. And so looking at the power associated with the with an individual pursuit it's much closer to that vo2 max value and so we were targeting our training based on that the values that we saw from some of these models just you know looked like he was you know training less than a you know a 60 year old masters rider this coach and i was like well this doesn't really make sense to me and so really started to go down the road of looking at these different values that were much more important and even you know in track cycling taylor got into the the kilo the you know minute-ish event now uh plus or minus i guess a second these days dipping under a minute in some cases but other riders as well worked with sarah hammer who uh was switching from you know an individual pursuit focus to a an omnium focus for the london olympics and helping her evaluate where her strengths and weaknesses were and where she needed to develop as a rider and look across that continuum of abilities because an omnium definitely required a, a mix of abilities to have success. And so that kind of information we've been using for a while and being able to continue to develop and craft that and develop workouts that target those different systems have been in play for a while and we just keep getting a little bit better. And so I would say Rowan and Kasha are... Uh, able to benefit from from some of this work that we've been doing for a number of years. Yeah, Rowan is a fascinating athlete, isn't he? Um, it must he be uh, really interesting to, to work with. For sure. So, I mean, I first, you know, probably met Rowan very briefly in 2008 at the uh, Junior World Championships with, with Taylor, actually, in Cape Town, South Africa. And so in the final of the 3K and Junior World Championship individual pursuit in 2008, it was uh, Taylor versus Rowan. And, and Taylor did come out on top of that one and then continued on to the uh, Olympics in the individual pursuit that year in 2008 and uh, I got to know Rowan a little bit better in the coming years then as I was working with uh, both Taylor at the, the track uh, some of the World Cups and World Championships and then our U.S. women's team I continued on when Taylor moved to a bigger focus on the road and so uh, when when uh, Rowan finished his career in the track after London in 2012 uh, you know he contacted me about working with him uh, to help him get him get that transition from track uh, performance to to being a, a higher performer on the road and so way back in the fall of 2012 we started working together um, and what what are the sort of particular differences between you know a really high level track rider and and a, a road rider what do you need to work on yeah there's there's a few things so uh, it, it 
Depends a little bit on what the focus of the rider is going to be. So Rowan was looking a bit more time trial and and even uh, stage race focus. On the track, the longest event that he had done, typically, you know, uh, Team Pursuit. Uh, he did some other races for sure, but, you know, a sub-four-minute event uh, with extreme power demands and technical components, uh, very, very important. And uh, he also definitely had success in time trialing already. He had, you know, a silver medal uh, as a under-23 at the World Championships in 2012. So definitely an accomplished rider, but being able to carry that from a U23 level on the road to success at the Pro Tour level is definitely a, a bit of a jump. You know, there's very few athletes um, that, you know, just make that jump very rapidly and quickly and easily. Um, I mean, I guess these days, sometimes from now, we're seeing some riders kind of skip over the U23 and coming straight at it, which is quite an interesting situation. But, you know, Rowan had long-term goals, uh, had tasted success at a very high level, uh, you know, a silver medal at the 2012 Olympics, and he had hunger for more and has hunger for more. And so being able to uh, help him develop and improve endurance and train the way a road rider does with more repeated days of, of intensity um, and volume back-to-back -back and building that kind of endurance is a, a multi-year process really to kind of maximize what's possible. An extraordinary result in Yorkshire last year, yes. um, which presumably you were delighted with. And I heard an interview with him recently where he said that uh, his kind of two targets, his only targets really for this year are Worlds and Olympics, you know, um, and how does that kind of change the way that you work with an athlete? Yeah, um, I mean, last year in Yorkshire was an amazing, amazing day. Uh, a hard uh, lead-in in, in certain respects. Uh, did not follow the typical path. Uh, uh, did not have any race days for seven weeks. Because he'd left his team during the Tour de France and really hadn't raced again since, had he? Yep, so there weren't any racing opportunities there. So the training was done pretty much by and large by himself. We changed things up a little bit instead of some of the longer training blocks that we had used. We kind of shortened those down a little bit, but still had very, you know, specific intensity work being done and still, you know, appropriate volume certain days, some long rides in there because his goal, of course, was to repeat as the world champion in the individual time trial, which is a very, you know, massive task and the pressure that comes with that and then again in the situation of not having you know raced with the team uh and all the stuff that was coming with that you know added just another element of pressure and expectation and uh, to do basically anything other than win would have been a failure in in certain respects and so for him to be able to put together that performance on the day was kind of a magical you know result for him and what he did and how he was able to to keep everything together and, and perform. And the other thing he's talking about, I'm not sure how seriously, is another crack at the World Hour record. We've had some discussions. Uh, the very first time when we talked about it, it was more honestly as a joke, I think. And then he said something, I, I believe, in, in media somewhere, talking about Jens Voigt's record being not that, you know, not that amazing or something to that effect. Like, I could do it and... I was like, well, you might have to back that up. And, you know, it did fortunately escalate. And, and it was actually an opportunity that we had looked at to, to improve his ability to, as an athlete and racer and perform better. Uh, like the 2014 World Championships, 
pacing was was an issue. You know, he went hot after the second time check, went for it, and he blew up. Uh, he faded out, and you know, faded out of the the medals there at that World Championship, and so. Being able to to focus in on the hour was actually a, a lesson in learning how to pace and and deliver that kind of effort over the entire duration, so over the hour, um, and that was definitely a fine success and followed with some uh, pretty amazing uh, other race results. Uh, you know, the Tour Down Under, which happened before the hour record, uh, but then the the yellow jersey, the first stage at the Tour in Utrecht in uh, 2015, was a pretty fantastic uh, follow up from that. And so uh, the hour may play, again, a part in, uh, in Rowan's future. And so, you know, we've been looking at different places where he could do that and what it's going to take with those scenarios and, and how that preparation may, uh, may, may come together. But first goals first with Tokyo and, and uh, Switzerland. Uh, Mac, the, the, the sort of advances in... Um the way that people train, the way that you know people uh, get better, particularly at, at an amateur level, has been quite extraordinary over the last ten years. Do you think we've sort of reached a peak in our ability to transform people, or is there still a long way to go? I definitely think there's still a long way to go. I think, I think on the physiological side, in terms of training stimulus and understanding more about rest and you know what sort of training you should do in your time crunch, people are much more aware of what's going on and there's lots of apps that now um you know take care of that for you um i think there is still a massive part to be gained on the mental side this the psychology of of training of digging deep of learning where your limits are learning how to you know handle setbacks that sort of thing is something that is expanding now and i think is definitely going to continue to expand it in 20 years time it's going to be you know just like heart rate monitors are now like, well, yeah, that's what you, like, obviously you use power, obviously you use heart rate. I think that component is going to be a foundation to training in the future. You're listening to The Ruler Podcast, supported by LACA, bicycle insurance powered by the community. I'm Mark Williamson, and I've been a LACA customer since the start of 2019, so about eight months now. So I was on this new bike, and stopped off at a coffee shop at a hotel just to send a few emails and make a call. Came out and found someone had taken off um, the headset at the front. They'd cut the braking gear cables, they'd unscrewed the handlebars and stolen the, the, the bars and shifters. Lacquer were phenomenal, actually. I was blown away by both the immediacy and the kind of helpfulness of the support. They seemed keen to help. Uh, and it was just a remarkably hassle-free experience. couldn't have been happier with the service despite being incredibly frustrated that somebody had decapitated my uh, my new bike. Well, Ruler Desire Editor Stuart Clapp is here. Stuart, are you a fan of the uh, high-tech training methods? Uh, not in the slightest. Well, no, I am. I suppose if you're a pro cyclist, you need all that sort of stuff, right? Or they tell you you need it. Did Eddie Merckx have it? I don't know. He, he, he won a couple of races without having a power meter and all that stuff. I think if power meters were available, Eddie would have had it because he was all over the technology, wasn't he? He was meticulous. I've seen a Sunday in hell where he has his seat height measured every 10 minutes. Well, no, I'm not really. I, I've had power meters in the past, but do you know what? It sort of, I don't race anymore and I just like riding my butt. I know when I'm going hard and I know when I'm going like medium and I know when I'm going easy. 
But actually, funny you say that. I've had pneumonia. I got a cold, end up with pneumonia. So I've started training again. Like started like riding my bike. Say training, just riding my bike. And a couple of my mates have had the same sort of lurgies. And a couple of them have got back on and started riding again. No heart rate monitor, but are going purely on power. It's cracking them because obviously they've been off the bike. They're not hitting their numbers that they're supposed to be doing. And obviously they're working really hard to hit those numbers and then putting themselves in a box. So I've been using my heart rate monitor inside now because I've given up trying to ride outside. When you're not well, riding easy is all right, providing there's not a gale going on outside. Because one way, it'll be really easy. The other way, you'll be in zone five. I started riding my rollers inside and everything. And I've been using my heart rate monitor again. And that is like a true test. So I suppose if you are going to have all the info available, you need it all. You don't. You can't just have power. You've got to have heart rate as well. Or otherwise, if, especially if you're recovering from something like an injury or an illness or something. But, you know, and you need to see how fit you do. Suppose, you know, you're going to do 300 watts one week. You'll be doing it in zone four. And when you're getting fitter, you'll be able to do 300 watts in zone three. That's unlikely, but, you know. You would. I think that's what Neil and Mac were saying, that you can't just rely on a single number or set of numbers. You've actually got to look at all what your body is doing as a, as a whole. Um, the other area where uh, technology is really making a difference is, is helmets and safety, isn't it? And you've been riding the POC helmet, with, which, kind of has, which, which kind of collects data. It's the POC Ventral Air, but it has the twice me it's got a device in it basically which is a safety feature rather than sort of like performance and hopefully i'll never ever use it it's got this chip in it that uh, that you can sort of like download an app to a smartphone and you can touch it and on it it will have your medical details like blood group everything else like eye color and things like that like distinguishing you know, like features so if you're unconscious and a paramedic finds you um, providing they have the app, which will be sort of, I, I actually ran into a couple of um, paramedics in the cafe when I was uh, riding a little while ago and I showed them the helmet and I was like, what do you think of this? And they said, that's great. We just need to know what the app is. So then if we see that logo, which it looks like a, almost looks like a Wi-Fi thing on the side of a helmet, they can scan it and it'll have everything in there because they were saying that, you know, if they find an unconscious cyclist on the side of the road, they don't particularly want to move them because they don't, know, they don't know how they've got there. So, yeah, it's a really cool bit of kit, especially if you ride on your own, because I ride on my own quite a lot. Like, I, I spoke to Damien from Pop. Damien is the, like, the, he's the coolest guy ever. Da Damien was sort of saying, it's like, we want this helmet to speak for you when you can't. And it's like, that's kind of what this helmet's about. So, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of really, really cool stuff out there. But I, um, I think we spoke to the guys, didn't we, when we were back at the, the Ruler Classic in November. Yeah, do you remember we talked to Frederick and Magnus from POC and Gustav from a company called Exeger, and they work in uh, light charging panels and, and what they're doing as well. Yeah, helmets that if you wear them in, actually not even in sunlight, in, in just ambient light, they, they generate an electric charge. The conversation started with us talking about that first POC road helmet design, uh, which was a bit of a game changer, wasn't it? Our take on the road bike helmet had to be all about safety. Uh, but to be a, a professional 
a helmet for the professionals, it also needed to be very light and very ventilated. These three uh, ingredients was uh, non-negotiable, so less than 200 grams and uh, the most ventilated and the safest helmet on the market was the, the aim with the project. And it looked different. Was there some sort of resistance at first? Did people look at it and think, actually, that's not what we expect from a high-performance helmet? I guess. I'm actually not a road bike cyclist myself. I'm a skier and mountain biker and surfer and so on, but not road bike. And my engineering mind was maybe not uh, in tune with with the... Um, the road bike helmet at that time. So this is actually, the result is more or less what happened in my mind, uh, trying to solve these, this equation in the best way. And, wh and what was the key difference in the sort of approach to head safety, if you like, to brain safety, that led to the design of this helmet? We wanted it to be more safe, have more coverage, uh, especially in the back of the head. Helmets was, really high in the, the back of the head, leaving big parts of the head unprotected. And same in, in the temple areas, which is actually a very sensitive area of your brain. So we really wanted to make sure to protect these parts of the head as well in the most efficient way. So uh, in the end, it's a bit polarizing because it is wider and, and bulkier than Hamlet was at the time. Uh, but for us, safety and other performance uh, like ventilation and the low weight was the most important thing. So yes, it ended up uh, a bit different uh, from other helmets. But now it actually looks quite familiar, doesn't mm. it? Now you know, a lot of other <coughs> I guess helmets people look similar. It's more used to it. Yeah. Stuart, Stuart, you're a fan of Park, yeah, aren't I, you? I love this. Well, I, I was actually at the, the Tour de France the year Ryder wore the dids. I think Garmin were riding with, with Giro at the time. And I said to one of the guys, and I was like, so uh, when are Pop going to do a road helmet? And they're like, well, right, don't talk about that. We, we've talked about it in the past. And how you had a mood board behind, and you took reference from old-style helmets, like, like De Vlemink and a hairnet helmet. Because those stripes were sort of reminding me of those. It's actually like, although it was really modern, it had like a nod to like the classic golden age of cycling, which is what I kind of got straight away. But it was such a divisive helmet, but like people either loved it or hated it when it came out. Like, I don't, don't get it, because it looks so different. But now we see it, as you were saying, Ian, and it's, I don't know, it's, it's quite, it's, it's rare that you get excited about a bit of like safety equipment. But the thing with, the, the thing where you look at Puck and how you look at brands, I think people have started to look at brands so differently now where, it's, there's a lot of good stuff out there. Pop, you know, you've, you've led a lot of, as we're going to talk about in a minute, with the, the sort of the tech behind this helmet that you're holding, that you're buying something that, that you have an affinity with, the brand, rather than, like, the products. Like, ah, he's a pop guy. He's a, he's a Giro guy. You know, it's like, like that. But, yeah, this helmet's really interesting because do you want to tell us a bit about this, like, the, the, the materials you're using it? Because that was quite mind-bending. It's actually, I feel like I'm living in the future. <laughs> the future stuff, absolutely. Yeah, tell us about the future stuff. Uh, so we recently uh, uh, released that we are doing a cooperation. I am from Exeter, uh, together with Poc. 
to bring out uh, the next generation of self-powered smart helmets. So what we have done is that we have developed a new material. It's a light charging material. Basically, it's a solar cell that works in any light condition, from artificial light to direct sunlight, that can be seamlessly integrated into any device thanks to its uh, unique design capabilities. So these cells can be produced in any shape, in different textures, etc. So the cell becomes a natural part of, for instance, the helmet or these headphones. So this is an enabling technology where we bring a power budget to designers and producers like POC to be able to take their products to the next level, bring smartness, bring increased functionality without affecting the aesthetics. Because we all know that, why do we buy stuff? Because you look cool, because you have nice functionality. And you can't increase the functionality on the cost of the looks. So just to be clear, you yeah. get this material and it charges under natural light or artificial light. And then if you have, say, lights on your helmet or you have headphones which need power, then you never actually need to plug it in and charge it. Is that right? It's down to how you use it. I mean, if you're outside all the time, of course, uh, um, it's quite easy to calculate depending on what kind of stuff you put in there. But what we can do also is to put in new kind of sensors into, say, helmets. So we have impact sensors, G-Shock sensors, which will also, in case of a crash, give you immediate information how severe was this crash. But it will also be able to bring back information to producers like POC, who are quite proactive in safety and security, to give them information what happens before and during a crash, and that will help them, together with us, bring out the next generation helmets, which will be even safer for the users. So the helmets you're actually wearing add to the research for future models? It, it collects data for us. Uh, to, so after a crash, we, we can study the helmet and how it physically is damaged from the crash and draw our conclusions from that. But we can also see how much force the crash gave to the helmet and, and you know, therefore to the brain. So it feels like we're in the future already. What, what's, what's the next step then? What's, you know, what's the, the next thing in, in, in helmet safety in particular? With this technology, we are able to know more about uh, real life crashes. We know a lot about uh, testing uh, helmets and, and to you know, fulfill those standards that are required for us to, to, to pass. But helmets from, for example, our proto team, uh, we collect all those helmets that's been involved in the crash. Uh, we uh, take part of information from the riders if they had concussions uh, uh, or not, uh, and, and then try to uh, draw conclusions on how we could make uh, their next generation helmet uh, better. For, uh, more efficient. And that's it from this podcast. Don't forget the Ruler Long Reads podcast next week. Soon after that, I'll be reporting from Belgium for the opening of the classic season.